I'm Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome to the Middle East Political Science Podcast. On this week's episode, we talk to Iskander Sadahi Borogerdi, author of the new book, Revolution and Its Discontents, Political Thought and Reform in Iran. We'll also talk to Adeli Shevi of SOAS about her article, From Surya al-Assad to Suryatna, uh, a discussion of Syrian identity in the civil war. Finally, we talked to Bia Hamami of Syracuse University about recent political developments in Tunisia. Thanks for listening to our program. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's book segment, we're joined by Iskander Sadegi Borogerdi uh, of University of London, author of the new book, Revolution and Its Discontents, Political Thought and Reform in Iran, just published by Cambridge University Press. Uh, Iskander, thank you for joining us. Hi, Mark. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here with you. So tell us a little bit about this book. It comes out of your dissertation. Um, what is the book about? What's the main contribution? Well, I mean, there are a number of books um, exploring the reform movement um, and its history. Obviously, 1997 is often seen as an incredibly important year in the history of, sort of post-revolutionary Iran. But I thought there hadn't really been um, an adequate kind of intellectual history um, of that movement. And given that I see myself very much working in sort of in the intersection of sort of the history of political thought and uh, political theory, I thought it was time to kind of maybe rethink um, the intellectual history of that movement um, and do it with the kind of, I guess, rigor um, that, it, that it really did need. So, I mean, in terms of like the contribution, I think it tries to do a few things. I mean, one is actually sort of trying to trace the... So what I call the material structures of reformist thought, basically the various kind of think tanks and reading circles and um, various kind of networks, actually, really, which, um, which gave rise to um, this sort of intellectual movement, I would say. Um, another one is actually just kind of looking at, like, really what is reformism, how it was sort of articulated you know, at various different junctures of the Islamic Republic. Um, and I would say probably the third maybe contribution is trying to sort of get beyond um, a purely kind of um, mythological nationalism in the way the reform movement has been understood and really try and understand its engagement um, with kind of the history of political thought um, uh, during the Cold War, in particular, in particular kind of Cold War liberalism. Well, so one thing which is really interesting about this for me, who doesn't really do political theory uh, most of the time, is just how seriously you take the ideas and you really do an amazing job of really digging into the actual ideas and not just like the uh, the organization and the civil society and the stuff that you know political scientists looking at uh, the Iranians the, uh, you know the 1990s in Iran often look at tell us a little bit about this why do you think it's so important uh, to really engage with the ideas of these intellectuals um i just think because they have a huge um they do clearly have a very um, important um role in not only sort of the islamic republic's understanding of itself but actually particularly in the founding um of the islamic republic we do see sort of a very sort of vibrant um very kind of energized ideological contestation i mean um china for instance isn't the only place that had a cultural revolution i mean iran had a cultural revolution um obviously in the first years of the revolution there was a very much heated um, ideological debates. It was sort of absolutely essential that you know the sort of Islamist ideologues in a sense, vindicate their political vision, and they had to do that through recourse to um, everything, also everything that sort of was available to them, all the sort of various sort of ideological and theoretical um, uh, tools that were at their disposal. Um, they thought it was absolutely essential, for instance, to critique their leftist um, rivals, and obviously um, Iran isn't an exception to this, and actually seeing itself very much in sort of a heated contest with sort of uh, Marxist and socialist um, liberal movements, as it were. Um, and that's and, and basically that sort of has carried on throughout the history of the Islamic Republic, I would say. I would say that um, very much has continued to be of the utmost importance. And Iranians are just generally are um, do take their intellectuals very, very seriously. So one of the things that I thought was actually essential was to look at um, yeah, what were the sort of the canons that these sort of various thinkers were actually drawing upon? Um, to what use were they being put? Um, were they using English or other translations? Uh, if so, when were these translations 
uh, being made and what was the significance. So we can talk maybe a bit more about the content of that. But I think, you know, it goes without saying that, you know, the founding of the Islamic Republic took ideas um, you know, very, very seriously and and perhaps less so today. But um, but still, I mean, very, very vibrant in this respect. Well, maybe we should start with Khomeini then and and, and how he articulated the, 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 the Islamic Republic and where this Islamic left that you primarily focus on, how did they relate to Khomeini and this, you know, the creation of this new Islamic Republic? Right. So um, as I'm sure many of your listeners will know, Ayatollah Khomeini famously theorized Islamic government. He did so in um, a series of lectures that were published in 1970. This is when he was obviously in exile in Najaf, and this was his theory of Velat uh, al or Wilayat al um, basically the rule of the jurist. Um, he held, just very briefly, he held that in order to, for Islamic law to be executed, you need to have a state. And obviously, the sort of the ultimate interpreters or the best interpreters of Islamic law were, were the ulama, the clergy. Um, and that's very, in a nutshell, um, his theory. Uh, which in many ways actually broke with um, with the history of um, Shia uh, Jafari uh, jurisprudence. Um, but that really became a, a key frame, obviously, in the revolution and was increasingly um, advocated by his supporters. He himself was actually much more circumspect. And, you know, there's a complicated kind of history there. But it was clearly kind of very much advocated by his sort of his devotees. Um, the Islamic left, who I, who, who in essence I worked on in the book, and the, and, the, and the book is really about that, the history of the Islamic left and um, the ideologies which uh, of the Islamic left. The Islamic left were were a group that were very much devoted to Ayatollah Khomeini's um, leadership, um, but they saw themselves and they, they referred to themselves as the left. I mean, chap in in Persian, um, and the reason why they were left was because. They were profoundly influenced, we can say, by many of the sort of the dominant ideologies in the in the period of decolonization and sort of these anti-colonial movements. Namely, that and we for every and we can think of maybe Nasser's Egypt as a good example, or Nayere in Tanzania, or um, Nkrumah in in Ghana. But basically, this idea that the state had an absolutely essential role to play in redistribution, um, nationalization was a key was a key tenant. Uh, state control of the intervention of the economy, social justice, um, and and some on the Islamic left were even more radical, talking about sort of um, sort of um, workers having a role actually in uh, in profit sharing schemes and these sorts of things. Um, so the left were clearly devoted to Ayatollah Khomeini. They definitely saw themselves under his banner, uh, but they also had these various different um, ideological. Um, uh, um, uh, yeah, commitments. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, the thing with obviously the Iranian revolution is that, you know, um, basically the, the coalition which led to um, Ayatollah Khomeini's sort of uh, supremacy, as it were, or his victory, uh, was characterized, I mean, very, again, to say, simplify, on one hand, sort of the bazaar and the support of the bazaar. Uh, who had a sort of obviously a more mercantilist, mercantilistic kind of outlook, um, and those who were, for instance, committed more populist in orientation, committed to the quote-unquote dispossessed. And the Islamic left definitely saw themselves on the sides of dispossessed, where, whereas other you know, very strong supporters of Khomeini saw themselves on uh, the right um, and were very much close to the bazaar and therefore saw pro- private property as sacred and were very kind of hostile to many of these initiatives being advocated by the Islamic left. And just to and just to make just to cap off this one point, the Islamic left is obviously is important in my stories because ultimately we would see this radical they would undergo this radical transformation in many ways and, and rebrand themselves as reformists in the 90s. One thing which is interesting in, in your narrative of this is where the ulama fit in terms of uh, the frustrations that not only the left, but also Khomeini uh, often felt with them. Yeah, so I mean, um, I mean, Khomeini um, is an interesting figure because he was often quite disgruntled at the sort of the apolitical, more conservative clergy. And he often sort of, he, and it's often joked that the th- kinds of things, the kind of scathing things he said about the apolitical clergy could not be said by anybody else and have been said by anyone else ever since. Um, and he was remarkably um, hostile to them. And I mean, one of the actually the outcomes of the revolution, interestingly enough, is that um, a special court for the clergy was actually established, which, which is really both a disciplined dissident clergy and anyone who perhaps maybe de- deviates from sort of the dominant kind of mantras um, of the state. But I mean, within the clergy itself, who were devoted to Khomeini, again, we see very much clear ideological rifts um, of both left and right. 
Um, left usually saw themselves still very much in line with this third worldist um, uh, line. Uh, often they were sort of, uh, as young men, they had gone to see Ali Shariati speak in the Hosseinia Ershad, um, and very had sort of much more kind of liberatory, liberation theology-esque kind of perspective on Islam. Whereas you had obviously um, more conservative-minded clergy, again, who were very much uh, working hand in glove with the bazaar and very much about protecting the bazaar's um, interest. And, and as you sort of implied, I mean, these divisions run through the clergy, and we do see this in sort of the post-revolutionary um, clerical organizations. Um, so initially upon the revolution, we see this organization called the Society of Combatant Clergy, which is really to bring all of those clergymen who were supporters of Khomeini under sort of one banner. But then over time, uh, what we see is gradual rifts sort of growing. And this really culminates in 1988 with a split within the, uh, within the Society of Combatant Clergy. And we see the emergence of the Association of Combatant um, Clerics here. Um, and often these two are associated with rather well-known names today. So the first um, leader of the uh, of the newly founded uh, Association of Combatant Clerics in 1988 was Meti Karubi, um, who would later become a key figure in the Green Movement. Um, and in actually, the, and, pro and probably the leading lights in the Society of Combatant Clergy were um, Ayatollah um, uh, Akbar Hashmi Rasanjani, who would obviously become president in the 1990s, and Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, who obviously went on to become the supreme leader in the late 80s. Um, but there clearly is, a, a, mm -hmm. there are real ideological differences between uh, all of these players, even though they will often come together when they see a shared, when they have a sh around a shared adversary or around a particular crisis. So let's focus now on the Islamic left, which is the focus of the book. And so tell us about their transformation and how after the death of Khomeini, uh, they evolved so quickly into this alternative force culminating in the election of Muhammad Khatami in 97, only like eight years after Khomeini, de Khomeini dies. Yeah, so... Um... What's interesting about the Islamic left is that it is made up of these various different, we could say, organizations, groups, and so on. And they form really kind of an informal network, and they're mm -hmm. often actually bound, to be, bound together by the kind of the newspapers and periodicals which they um, publish. So on the left, as I've already said, we have the Association of Combatant Clerics, uh, which really comes, to, comes into its own in the third majlis. The, re the reason why it even emerges is because um, increasingly... Um, candidates on the left were finding themselves either being disqualified or actually being prevented from being on electoral lists for um, the Society of Combatant Clerics. So this is actually the main, this sort of crisis, the fact that the left felt itself being marginalized very clearly is one of the main reasons why um, this other clerical organization emerges in the first place. Um, similarly with the uh, Mujahideen organization of the Islamic um, revolution, this is another kind of very, very important organization which would ultimately in its near incarnation would be banned in 2009 but this is also um, a group which um, was very very actually important in sort of acting as a, a militarized was bulwark to the new regime against its sort of various ideological political foes particularly the Mujahideen Khalq um, who some of you might uh, some of your listeners might obviously be aware of and there are other organizations particularly obviously the um, the student followers of the imam's line these are the student radical students who left the, who actually led the hostage um the hostage taking of the u.s embassy um in 19 november 1979 so basically there's a sort of a constellation of groups here which as i said through the late 80s and early 90s increasingly find themselves marginalized um and they're particularly marginalized in elections um, and it's really in the late 80s, but particularly in 1992, with the fourth Majlis, that we see the Guardian Council, the sort of probably well-known again to your list and sort of infamous organization, finally sort of clarifies its position on Article 99 of the Constitution, which gives it this prerogative to disqualify um, candidates from standing uh, for elections. So what happens is you increasingly get these kind of mass disqualifications of um, leftist candidates and people who basically said he had a had a real claim on Khomeini's legacy as far as they were concerned and a claim on the revolution and and and, and if not an equal claim even a, even a greater claim than their factional um, rivals who the left at this point I mean in the in the eighties saw very much as betraying kind of the the legacy of Ayatollah Khomeini and many of them in the eighties were still pretty radical so uh, for instance Mehdi Karubi still was defending the 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 fatwa against Salman Rushdie. Uh, pretty late in the day, but then again, what we see over this period in the late uh, in the late 1980s and throughout the 1990s is a period of kind of introspection. 
So because they have, in a sense, been politically marginalized and pushed out, some of them go to study abroad. Some of them actually go and pursue PhDs within Iran itself. Many of them go to University of Tehran and study political science. Um, even before the revolution, many of them actually had studied engineering, but actually being brought into the system, as it were, in the political system, had compelled them to pursue uh, political science education. Um, many of them actually start forming informal reading groups um, and go study sessions, and uh, they basically read things which they think are very much pertinent to thinking through the ongoing challenges and dilemmas faced by um, the Iranian state. Um, and growingly, we see them coming to the conclusion that, you know, the previous kind of third world or populist Khomeini's outlook um, was there wasn't really sort of much of an audience for it or much of a it wasn't really being welcomed, uh, particularly in Iran and the mood to change. And obviously the big global change at this point is, is the end of the Cold War itself, the defeat really of Marxism as a viable project as far as they were political project as far as they were concerned. Um, and really a casting aside of many of these sort of formative ideological influences, which, which, which had obviously been absolutely decisive in uh, the 60s and the 70s. So this goes from everything from sort of Fanonian um, sort of anti-colonialism to uh, dependency theory um, and so on and so forth. And we see them really kind of shrugging off or, get, or sloughing off. Uh, many of these previous kind of uh, beliefs and doctrines and ideas and, and revising them and moving much more, we might say, in a kind of a liberal, a recognizably liberal direction. Um, and yeah, and then this happens really throughout the course of the 1990s and is ongoing, this ongoing kind of revision. And it sort of happened. And just to one last point, it's basically happening also simultaneously with um, Rafsanjani and Khamenei, who are the president and supreme leader, respectively, basically rethinking, trying to obviously rebuild Iran, uh, coming out of the Iran-Iraq war and trying to normalize relations uh, as well. So one of the real strengths of the book, um, and there are many strengths, is the way you you really look at these, uh, at the different, uh, you call them study circles, but the networks, uh, often um, rooted around a particular newspaper uh, or periodical um, and looking at how each of them develop their own critique or their own um, kind of, uh, you know, rethinking of the Islamic Republic. Tell us a little bit about those, about uh, the, the each of the circles and kind of what their unique contribution was, understanding that they're part of a shared milieu. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, exactly as you put it, that we, we see this sort of burgeoning, this efflorescence of um, study circles, think tanks, and so on. And just as I think it's important just to say that um, the Islamic left's kind of political capital and social and cultural capital that they had built as a result of actually, you know, being you know, at the very forefront of the revolution allowed them to even have these platforms. And various other actually organizations were pretty much have been pushed aside, completely prohibited, driven into exile and so on. So the very fact that they could have these, you know, was a testament to the fact that they had all of this kind of pol political and symbolic capital, which they had kind of built up um, and they used it to, to, to some effect. So, I mean, Mohammed Khatami, it should also be said, who later becomes president in 1997, actually was minister of culture for a, a, a considerable stint um, under um, first Musavi and then uh, Hashmi Ras Sanjani. Um, and he supported very much through the sort of the Kehan Institute, first of all, various publications such as Kehan Farhangi, which is a particularly important one, um, which was in a sense state subsidized, but then gave rise to particularly a very important series of articles by Abdul Karim Sarouch um, on the expansion and contraction of religious knowledge, which really kind of uh, amounted to a kind of historicist critique of um, a kind of jurisprudential Islam, as they saw it, very much critiquing actually um, some of yeah some of the basic tenets of of, of that the that the clergy had taken um, for granted in many ways, um, and then that's this as a result of that actually uh, there then becomes you know there's, there's considerable pressure actually to 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 to, to basically to to clean, to get to purge that uh, to that magazine and it ultimately um, gets kind of the, the key personnel there are steadily removed. But then what happens is that the editors there, they go on to found, found another important publication by the name of Kian, which really becomes kind of this kind of touchstone for the so-called religious intellectuals, but it also is publishing plenty of things by um, 
everything from Karl Popper to Raymond Aron, lots of translations of sort of Western philosophical theoretical texts, which are then obviously drawn upon. But it's also a key site for the debate amongst these various um, religious intellectuals, some who are outside of the state or, and somehow say, but some who are still in. So one uh, example is Saeed Hajarian, who, who I talk about at length in chapter seven, who had previously served actually in the Ministry of Intelligence and actually been one of the founders of the Ministry of Intelligence. And he was actually debating in the pages of Kian under, uh, under a pseudonym um, during, these, during the 90s, actually. Um, so we actually see like a very clear debate amongst intellectuals, former state officials, and those with clear kind of a clear line into the state uh, about the direction of it, about the best way to think about um, reform and going forward. So one is Kian. Also, I mean, um, following uh, Khomeini's death, we have the establishment of this sort of presidential strategic research center, um, which is now called the Center for Strategic Research, which is now so, and today it's associated with the um, Expediency Council. And actually, uh, Hassan Rouhani was the head of that before he actually became president. But in the very beginning of the 90s, in the very early 90s and late 80s, it was very much in the hands of um, the Islamic left. And it was headed by a chap called Musavi Khawaniha, who was the mentor, actually, of the radical students who took the U.S. embassy um, in 1979. And in that publication as well, we see lots of reflections on uh, political development. And basically, political development was really, in many ways, a euphemism for a kind of controlled process of democratization. Um, and this was something, again, to which um, the pragmatic Hashim Rafsanjani, while he was very much open to economic liberalization, he was very much open to privatizing you know, various um, state assets and industries and whatnot. He definitely wasn't open to political uh, liberalization in any serious fashion. But again, this is something which would bubble up to the surface again following uh, Khatami's election in 1997. So yeah, just in just in short, I mean, we really do see that think tanks, reading groups, um, the various publications such as Kian, Kehana Farhangi, and Salam, which was basically the kind of the, 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 the main newspaper for the Islamic left, really are, in a sense, as a laboratory uh, for them to think through these ideas and what they would like to do ultimately if they ever were able to kind of reclaim the executive. Uh, two names that you just uh, that you just mentioned. Uh, the, the the final two chapters really do a fascinating job of showing the interaction between them and their different perspectives. And that's Muhammad Khatami and then um, Hajarian. Um, and can you talk through a little bit about this, about about Khatami and where he fits in all of this, and and his approach to reform versus the more political strategies and critiques that we see from Hajarian. Yeah, so I mean, I think what's actually interesting and what people often miss is that Khatami wasn't initially elected as a reformist and reformist wasn't actually a factional designation, which was particularly widespread uh, in the mid 90s and by 1997. It's really actually with the foundation, with the establishment of a newspaper following Khatami's election called Jama'er Society um, by you know, people who are very close to uh, and supported Khatami's platform, that this notion of reform and reformism really does get um, sort of the legs and is explicitly used in political discourse and actually designates a kind of a factional, um, a factional kind of orientation. Uh, and I say that because when Khatami was running, what he was really pushing for was you know, instituting the constitution to the letter that he thought this would actually rectify many of the issues. He believed very much in, he was, you know, his sort of buzzwords were the rule of law, civil society, which I guess, you know, meant more room for freedom of expression, freedom of association within limits. Um, and that was his agenda. And it's a bit like, you know, Gorbachev didn't sort of plan to sort of up, up, upturn the, the Soviet Union. And Khatami definitely did not, uh, plan to kind of completely overhaul the Islamic Republic. He wanted to really have a more humane kind of Islamic Republic. And he thought that many of the excesses could be addressed if the constitution was properly um, abided by. But then what we see subsequently is, yeah, an elaboration of something like a reformist outlook and philosophy. Hajarian, by contrast, um, who, as I mentioned earlier, who wasn't, who was a fascinating figure who, uh, who went through the Ministry of Intelligence then came out of the Ministry of Intelligence, went to pursue a PhD with a professor by the name of Hossein Bashiria, who had studied in the UK. He had authored one of the first, actually, books on the Iranian Revolution. Um, he also was the translator of Hobbes's Leviathan. And you can see the, actually the influence of Hobbes and Baudin, the other great sort of theoretician of sovereignty, on his thinking. 
Um, Hajarin was very much a kind of a political, we could say, mover and shaker. He was really, I would say, probably the preeminent exemplary case of somebody who was theorizing, thinking and thinking about the, the practical aspects as well. Uh, in, a, in, in the most in a really truly serious fashion so he basically had this idea that um okay and I should actually also say that Khatami won uh, and it was to the surprise of the left like it was it was actually a great shock um one of the a notable figure by the name of Bessel the Nabavi who was a key figure in the Mujahideen organization of the Islamic revolution he has famously sort of recounted that when we when we initially put Khatami forward we thought we would basically get like four four million votes and we would sort of reannounce our kind of, we have a stake in the system. And they ultimately got, you know, 20 million votes and 70%. And so automatically, so really overnight, they find themselves, you know, with this power and they can actually try and enact some of these um, ideas, which as I said earlier, have been in this sort of laboratory for some time. And Hajarian is all about sort of execution. So Hajarian's actually thinking, he's not naive uh, in the way that maybe some other of the reformists where he realized that you actually had to have mobilization from below in order to actually compel um, those sort of deeply entrenched and elected organizations, such as the Guardian Council, such as maybe the leader's office, even the judiciary and so on, to bow at least up to a point to popular power. So Hajarian very much thought that you needed to actually mobilize uh, people in order to achieve any real substantive gains. Um, and this is why we see Hajarian, but also others found this front called the, the, the Participation Front, Musharakat, Jephe Musharakat. Um, and the idea behind Musharakat was really to act as this sort of mobilizer in order to get additional um, leverage. Um, but ultimately, the pro main problem was there was disagreements within the reformers themselves. So Khatami wanted to kind of limit maybe the power of the leaders to some extent or wanted rule of law in place. Uh, but he definitely didn't want to rock the boat too much. And he definitely didn't want to be seen as the leader of a particular faction. He famously actually responded to Hajarian, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I want to be the leader of the nation. I don't want to be the leader of a particular social movement. Whereas Hajarian was much of the mind that, no, 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 the only way you're going to get anything through is if you actually, uh, if you actually mobilize um, and build these organizations up. And what happens is just ultimately the, the, the organizations such as the, the Musharakat Front, as well as the Mujahideen organization of the um, Islamic Revolution of Iran, they just don't have the will or the capacity um, to do so. And we really find the uh, Hajarian's kind of plans, um, yeah, come to naught ultimately. But he's, a, but he's a fascinating theorist simply because he really helped to rethink basically the, you know, what sovereignty meant in the Islamic Republic. He re-theorized sort of Khomeini's legacy as one, as a kind of, um, uh, in a sense, a transitionary, a transitionary figure to a form of popular sovereignty. Um, um, and still today, he's, um, I should also say, he was so effective as both a strategist and a thinker that in 2000, he was actually, there was actually an assassination attempt on his life. He was shot and he was paralyzed um, as a result. And he still is alive, but... Uh, but obviously under quite difficult circumstances. Yeah, but he's still obviously very much trying to think through these ideas, but under far less, I could say, like um, fortuitous kind of circumstances today. So the core narrative of the book kind of runs through around then, around 2000, 2001. Um, but obviously the Islamic left and continues to you know, struggle with uh, developments in the Iranian system. And just really briefly, um, what has happened to the Islamic left? What lessons did they take from Khatami's failure? And, uh, you know, it's a lot to ask in five minutes, but, uh, um, you know, where, where is their thinking now? Right. I think obviously in two thousand, one of the things that obviously happened um, following uh, the sixth majlis, where the reformers basically had, had again had a majority and did very well, it's really in two thousand and four that we see the mass disqualification of incumbent MPs, um, and then really ever since then they've been sort of sort of uh, struggling um, to formulate a coherent um, strategy actually. Um, and that was obviously then compounded by international developments. So particularly, obviously, um, uh, George W. Bush is coming to power, the, fate, the infamous Axis of Evil speech, which was seen as very much, again, as a, as a, as, as a, slapping, a slap in the face of um, the reformists. Um, and then obviously the invasion of Iraq, um, obviously Afghanistan, mm -hmm. Iraq, and then subsequently sort of the, the turmoil unleashed by um, the Arab Spring has actually led them on a very kind of um, modest and defensive sort of um, strategy. So in, obviously in 2009 is an important moment as well because um, uh, Mir Hossein Mousavi is, 
he was again very much a figure on the Islamic left, um, really one of the leading um, um, figures. And obviously, he contested that election two thousand and nine, which was obviously Ahmadinejad's Mahmoud Ahmadinejad's second um, term, and that led to a huge um, crisis. And then the result of that is actually was a massive clampdown, sort of mass arrest of many people on the Islamic um, left. And then you have these famous kind of public uh, show trials in which actually Hajjarian was forced um, to denounce or to um, to actually to state that the Weberian theory of sultanism, which he had used in some context, mm -hmm. had no bearing on the Iranian system you know, of, of Velat al-Fariq. Um, so we see this huge clampdown, really, on the Islamic left. And then, as I said, this is sort of in the background of this are the international developments, which, again, don't look very uh, fortuitous for um, a deep-seated, transformative kind of change. And then I think, you know, all the turmoil that was witnessed in the region, both in Iraq and then subsequently Syria and elsewhere, it led the reformers to be extremely circumspect and conservative. And it was really actually just about... Um, keeping the slightest window open of possible contestation uh, in the hope that it might lead to something else. And I think that's obviously what led to them supporting um, Hassan Rouhani's um, um, election in 2013, which in many ways was obviously, you know, perhaps the only move that they, they could have pursued. But then many have been critical of them in a sense saying that that led them to really neuter any sort of criticism on the domestic front. It led them to completely, in a sense, new to their some more democratic demands for a democratic open, opening, because obviously Hassan Rouhani's main real agenda was obviously the nuclear file, foreign affairs, and uh, the economy. Um, and, all just, and not just that, actually, many um, reformists have a kind of ambivalent relationship to sort of greater liberalization of the Iranian economy, which some, again, would argue has led to greater income inequality in the country. So in a sense, the reformists, um, you know, their, their base, their constituency in the late 90s is really, I would say, shriveled considerably. One, because of obviously, there's a great disillusion with their ability to actually enact deeper structural kind of, kind of deeper structural reforms, which many would like to see. But also on the economic front, they're still seen as, I mean, a significant part of them are seen as very much in line with Rouhani's faction, which is called the executives of, the, of reconstruction. Um, and therefore, they're seen really as just peddling kind of the status quo and often seen as quite compromised. That should be said, there is a there are real disagreements within the reformists, and there is a more radical wing who are very unrelentingly critical. But again, they're, they're not a unified force in the same way that they, they were, and they don't have the kind of sway. And the more radical wing, which does speak to a larger constituency, doesn't have the ability, the means or the resources to actually um, to, to leverage um, the state or the Revolutionary Guard or, and various other institutions in a way which would be necessary. So they're really in a, in, in, today, I would say the reformers are between a rock and a hard place, um, really. Um, they're both seen as far too mild in their criticism and they're unable to really enact sort of deeper structural reforms which many want. Well, thanks, Eskander. We've been we've been talking about your new book, A Revolution and Its Discontents, um, because I because I tend to be more of a empirical political scientist. Um, we've talked mostly about the uh, you know kind of the politics of it and then the manifestations of it. But readers should know just how you know deep the comparative political theory in the book actually is, and strongly encourage you all to read it, check it out. And Eskander, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Mark. It's been a pleasure. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's article segment, we're joined by Adelie Chevy. She's a postdoctoral fellow at the Geneva Graduate Institute and the author of the new article, From Surya al-Assad to Suryatna, published in Nations and Nationalism, a special issue on Syria. Adelie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Mark, for having me. So tell us about this article and what you were trying to accomplish. Yeah, so this article is part of the theme sections on Syrian national belonging where we've been trying to think about the different ways that Syrians are belonging to Syria as a state. The idea was more or less to challenge um, literature on sectarianism that tends to um, associate political behavior or political mobilization in Syria only through the prism of sectarianism. Um, and this article in particular is looking at the Syrian revolutionary press. So this bunch of um, newspapers that were published after 2011 in the in the peaceful phase of the uprising at the beginning when people were very much invested in producing new media but also in the years afterwards when, when they're trying to produce those newspapers in in conflict conditions 
And this article is looking at one uh, particular newspaper, Suryatna, which is, according to me, an illustration of um, an ideology or a political identity that was actually very important in the Syrian uprising, which is civic nationalism. So there's so much going on here. Why don't we start uh, by unpacking this idea first about the revolutionary Syrian press and you know what was being published there and you know, why was it important in terms of thinking about national identity? So the Syrian revolutionary press is important first because a lot of what has been written about the uprising in 2011 has been focusing on social media. So this is actually something that you've seen about the, the uprisings in general. Uh, you know, we've been talking about the T Tunisia as being the Twitter revolution or Egypt as being the Facebook revolution. In Syria, was also the YouTube revolution. So we tended to associate mobilization in Syria uh, with social media, explaining how they helped to um, find protesters and mobilize protesters. And the print press was actually important because it was a traditional old-fashioned media that was actually quite used by newspaper uh, by 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 protesters. So my research in general is looking at those uh, newspapers that were quite important. You have about 300 newspapers that were produced in Syria since 2011. So of course many of them didn't last very long. You have many examples of newspapers that emerged. You know they they lasted for a couple of months and then they died because they didn't have financial resources or because they were targeted by either regime forces or the rebels. But you have this um, phenomena of a huge um, emergence of newspapers that were covering all of Syria, all of um, every governorate, every city, um, with a lot of different focuses as well. Some were focused on breaking news, some were focused on, um, you had women magazine, you had children's magazine, you had magazines that were focused on military groups. And you had some magazines that were, and newspapers that were particularly interested in civic nationalism, which is an ideology that was um, reimagined in 20, 2011 um, during the demonstrations. Um, it was this idea that the Syrian um, national body could be reinvented and expressed by protesters um, in opposition to two things in opposition to the discourse of sectarian fragmentation that was very much used by the regime at the time saying that this uprising was actually fomented by sectarian affiliations. It was a plot coming from abroad in order to divide Syrian according to sectarian lines. And it was also, um, civic nationalism was also about contesting authoritarian rule and the idea that Syria was the uh, property of the state leader. And this print press was very important in articulating that ideology, in, 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 in preparing um, symbols and discourses and narratives that explain how Syrians could imagine this, themselves as a community of equal citizens beyond sectarian affiliation, but also beyond the idea that the state was only the production and the property of the Syrian regime. So this print press was being produced and circulated inside of Syria. Was it mostly local or was it also online? How did it circulate? It's been produced essentially, first it started in Syria, and it was produced at, at, at the local level in cities, you, even groups of friends, actually. Those are very small production at the beginning. Then some of them, those that managed to um, in, get institutionalized and have broader editorial room, started to have journalists based all over Syria. So you would have connection in some city, reporters that would contribute to a journal or a newspaper that was not based in the city of origin. And then you had those newspapers that did have an identity as a print. So it was printed, you know, you would have on a, on a A4 size paper or the, the newspaper size paper, but it would actually exist only as a PDF if there was no money or no possibility to distribute that newspaper in print. And then you had those that relied both on print media, uh, on, on the print and on social media, but that were produced outside. And this became a trend over the years where more and more newspapers and editorial offices were produced outside Syria, so particularly in Turkey and Lebanon, because these were places where you could most, you could conduct, um, you, you, you could have an editorial room in, in safer conditions, right? So right. what was it, I, I was interested in was the fact that even though those newspapers would be PDFs or circulate you know, social media, those who produced them were very much attached to the idea of producing a newspaper as a design, you know, as a material object that would resemble a newspaper rather than, for example, creating a blog. Right. So 
Now, in the article, you want to make the case that uh, this ideology of civic nationalism persisted well beyond the early days of the uprising. I think I think you're right that a lot of people saw the sectarianization or the Islamization of the of the uprising, and you really want to see the c- continuation of this civic nationalism. So, tell us a little bit about that, and you know how does that fit within the context of what's happening inside of Syria? Yes. Um... So usually the narrative we have about this enterprising and is that you start by having a, a peaceful phase, a peaceful moment, which lasted about a year, right? Between March 2011 and, and about the spring of 20, 2012, uh, 2012, this is the moment when people went into the streets, um, they organized the so-called Tansikia, the coordination committees, and it was all about being peaceful. And it it was also the moment when you had um, a performance of national identity and national belonging that was very much civic. Um, this literature, literature, for example, has been explored by uh, uh, Salwa Ismail, who explained that protesters in their slogans, in their performance in the street, in the type of discourses that they had, in the images that they used, in the flag that they used, were trying to um, uh, perform a new form of Syria that was beyond sectarian identity. And then the narrative goes on that after that peaceful phase, the country descended into civil war based on sectarian identity. So it was a religious conflict, mostly opposing um, a Sunni majority against um, minorities, mostly the Alawi regime, but also the other minorities. So the article is not trying to say that this is not true. Uh, This is quite important indeed, but it's trying to show that contrary to what we think, this peaceful moment and those ideologies that were cross-sectarian actually continued after 2011, after the peaceful phase. And I do so by looking at newspapers because they are a record of a narrative of civic nationalism that lasted at least until 2018. Because the, the newspaper I focused on has been running continuously for seven years, but in my broader research program, I'm looking at other newspapers. So despite the descent into civil war, you had actors who were mobilized by the idea that you needed to have a uh, united Syria beyond sectarian identities. You, you can see this as well in the way that those newspapers relied on material resources, not just discourses, um, that helped them imagine that state. So very simply, um, at some point, Syria was divided into a lot of different rebel uh, zones, rebel areas. And in mm-hmm. those areas, you had the so-called media centers. So it was a building or an office that was occupied by associations, civil, uh, civil society, but also journalists who were, um, who were either the editorial room, the base of newspapers and magazines, or simply the, the places where the journalists were doing their work. And the fact that they were in interaction with the alternate, alternative uh, state structures in rebel zones helped them imagine how that Syria of the future could be imagined. So it would be through um, everyday interaction with the local council, with the bureaucracy, with the way that the rebel zones were trying to create a state, right? And even in 2013, we know that at least 40% of Syrians were actually living in rebel zones. Uh, so you had this idea that another type of Syria was trying to become constructed, even at the level of institutions and everyday life. So these newspapers are trying to show that through this experience in the rebel areas, and then through the discourses that were um, produced after 2011, after 2013, this idea of civic nationalism continued to inform political mobilization, and in particular the political behaviors of some of those activists were um, involved in Syria, usually not as uh, armed actors, but mostly as civil civil society actors. So you chose to focus on this one uh, particular newspaper, Suryatna. Tell us about that a little bit and what makes it so special? Why did you focus on that one? Yes, so Suryatna is, is particular because he's one of those newspapers that really started at the very beginning. Um, Jawad Muna, the editor, started it in September 2011. He actually had the idea already in August. So we were already six months in the uprising. And, um, but he had this idea that the uprising would last for some time and that they needed a newspaper in order to articulate a discourse against the regime's discourse that this uh, uprising was only a plot fomented by um, external actors. So Suryatna was interesting for me because it's been running continuously over seven years between 2011 and 2018. 
most of the newspapers that I've looked at, uh, this pool uh, of 300 newspapers, most of them, they lasted only a couple of months, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think the majority, half of them, if I had my stats in, in, in mind, half of them lasted actually only one month. So Suryatna so managed to be published over uh, seven years continuously, even though the editorial offices moved from Damascus, at the beginning it was in the Yarmouk camp, then it moved in another area of Damascus, then it moved to Gaziantep in the south of Turkey, and then it moved to Istanbul. And the other reason why I focused on Suryatna is that because it had a very large base of journalists, uh, they were based all over Syria, and the audience, the targeted audience of the newspaper was all of Su uh, Syria. So the, the title of the newspaper, Suryatna, means all Syria. And this is very important to show the political ideology of the newspaper. The idea was to say this surreal Assad, this Syria of Assad, that Assad Syria, is not the type of Syria that we want anymore. We don't want something, a country that has been built up and associated with one clan or one leader but we want to take back control of our Syria, Suryatna, and this is the main ideology of the newspaper. So the case, um, if you want, the article is focusing on, an ex on a typical case study, I would say. It's an illustration of Syrian nationalism. So maybe the last thing we could talk about is um, one of the things which is really distinctive about the article is the way you look at their employment of the imagery of the Syrian flag. So tell us about that, how you analyze that, and why you think it's significant. Yes, so the in order to write this article, I've been focusing mostly on visual analysis. Suryatna has this particularity of having very large images as the front page. In the same way you would think as a magazine like Life, or time, right? It's a very huge mm -hmm. image. It can be a photo or it can be most of the time it's a drawing. So it, it tells us a lot about how images and posters and visual identity was very important in their pricing. What I've done in the article is to survey uh, the 358 front pages of Suryatna and to look at the repetitive patterns in those images. And two things came out. Um, one was a flag and the second was a map. The flag was the flag that was used by the rebels. Um, at the beginning, in demonstration, people used to, to use the Syrian flag, and then they started to use the flag of the independence of Syria, uh, which has, rather than the red uh, dominant color, it has a green dominant color. And this flag started to be associated with the new project of the Syrian uprising, this Syria that would be cross-sectarian and democratic. So the the, the flag comes very often in the newspaper. It's, it, it, it comes in different uh, images. It comes also in pictures. And it's here up until the last issue in order to show that this idea of a future Syria is still upheld by the newspaper. The second image that I focus on is the map. So the map, we know um, after Benedict Anderson that maps are very important visualization of national identity. Um, so you can use the map for people as a symbol that is uh, very emotionally involved. Um, um, it's, it's very much related to the, to the attachment that you have to the nation. And the map of Syria appears a lot in these newspapers. And it very often it's actually, it's, it's torn and it's modified. You have a map of Syria that's been, that's been divided in all the different governorates as if they were separating from each other as a way to say that Syria is being divided. You have another map that is uh, being crossed over by a lot of different lines, uh, as if you had a lot of different people who were exiting Syria or moving inside Syria. This was a metaphor for internal displacement and refugee and exile. So the map itself is being used both in order to talk about Syria as an, an ideal, something that um, uh, protesters want uh, to reconstruct mm -hmm. together, but it's also used in order to criticize what's going on in Syria and to talk about the devastation of the country and the fact that it's being divided up into different local administrative structures. That's really, really interesting. There's so much more there in this and in your broader project. Um, thank you so much for joining us, Adelie. Thank you. Thank you very much. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's topical segment, we're joined by Dia Hamami, a PhD student at Syracuse University and a prolific commentator on Tunisian politics. Dia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to talk with you about uh, where Tunisian politics is today, uh, you know, looking back uh, to the, uh, the moves by Qais Saeed to suspend the constitution and institute a new political system. Um, from where you sit, 
Um, what do you think now, looking back at, uh, at what he's done with the political system and uh, what his agenda has turned out to be? Yes, so um, on July 25th from last year, um, President Kaisai decided to uh, unilaterally uh, take over the parliament uh, using military force. Uh, he tried to take over the judiciary, but there was a resistance and he couldn't. Um, he dismissed the, the um, prime minister and monopolized, ended up monopolizing both um, executive and legislative powers. Um, so he's right now ruling by, by decree and decrees cannot be challenged in front of courts. Um, so right now he is an autocrat, um, is not under any system of balance and check and political actors are reacting to Mm -hmm. uh his decisions day by day initially it seemed to be quite popular Uh, why was that as a a political outsider who does not belong to any political party uh he capitalized on people's uh decreasing uh trust in political institutions more generally and political parties more specifically um if we go back to the uh, 2019 World Value Survey, we can see that uh, there was already um, support to um, even military to take over um, an acceptance of a strongman rule, technocratic rule, and uh, different forms of non-democratic rule before even he was elected. So I think he uh, seized the moment. Uh, he was popular, yes, um, but he also benefited from um, the decrease of political participation um, more in participation in the elections. If we see the total numbers of people who voted for him, he's actually not very far from uh, both candidates in the previous presidential election of, um, of 2014. Um, so he's not exceptionally popular. He just happened to win in the second round of the um, presidential election with um, a wide margin, I think, was around 70%. Uh, so he is often uh, presented as a highly popular uh, political figure. And um, polls, um, whether produced by local organizations or even more recently, uh, the Zogby Institute in the US, um, confirmed that his actions are, are supported um, by a large proportion of the Tunisian population. And, and I think it comes mostly from um, a disillusionment from uh, the decisions made by political actors, as well as other factors like the um, economic outcomes of uh, the policies adopted during the last uh, decade. There was a particular um, animosity in some quarters towards Anahda, uh, uh, the Islamist party. Um, and how do, how do you think that factors into uh, the reaction to uh, President Saeed? Yes, we, we can talk about some sort of affect polarization, probably something that is uh, targeting Anahda specifically, sometimes even in an irrational way. We see a lot of fake news circulating on social media uh, about Anahda. Um, even before the coup, in fact, uh, centrist parties or members of centrist party were already um, using uh, uh, words like eradication to talk about the way uh, rivals of Nahda uh, should uh, treat it. Um, and, and so just after uh, the, the coup, many expected side uh, to target their leaders. Um, he didn't. Uh, so far, only uh, one key leader of Nahda is under detention. I wouldn't call that house arrest. Um, and um, some people, or I would say a big part of people who are now becoming more critical of Said, um, are simply disappointed because he didn't arrest them. Um, uh, Nahda's leaders, he didn't put them in jail, he didn't eradicate the Islamists. And a big part of them are supporting, in fact, uh, old regime figures like uh, uh, Abir Musi um, and, and her party. Uh, she used to be uh, 
uh, vice secretary general of Ben Ali's uh, uh, party. So, so the opposition to Qais Saeed is not necessarily stemming from a normative pro-democratic uh, position. It, a big part of it comes from um, a disillusionment from Saeed's right, lack of radicality towards uh, the Islamists. Now, based on what he's said and what he's doing now, um, what is a Saeed trying to do uh, in terms of creating a new political system? What is his, what is his uh, agenda? So um, the narrative of Qaisa Saeed and his allies is focusing on an unusual form of decentralization, um, some sort of election based on uh, a bottom-up process that and at some moment, in order to form the legislative uh, body, the national uh, parliament, he would like, or his supporters would like, to use a random selection to increase the representativity of the masses and decrease the representativity of elites. In the same way, political scientists do surveys. Mm -hmm. He wanted to be more representative of the masses. And he's some inspired from um, the experience of the um, uh, of uh, council democracy or Soviets in in uh, the late uh, in the late nineteenth uh, century and early twentieth century in in Europe, um, but I don't think he will be able to establish uh, the system. However, um, what is what seems more concerning is that he would like at the same time to concentrate executive powers at the level of the president and reduce the system of balance and check. Um, um, and uh, some of his advisors or, or uh, lawyers uh, collaborating with him are even against the concept of, uh, of independent institutions that are not subject to um, the authority of any, um, any of the three branches of the government. Um, so he is planning or he is moving uh, towards um, uh, major, constitutional reforms and it's not clear if he would be able to get the 50% at least required for the approval of the new constitution in the referendum. And there, so there's no uh, timeline for a return of parliament or anything of the state of emergency? No, he's not even considering that. I, I would say even a major part of uh, the opposition is not considering the written of uh, the parliament. Um, however, he presented it, a timeline um, in a speech. Um, he didn't issue any text uh, defining the timeline. Uh, so we will. So right now he is running some sort of uh, popular consultation online, a highly controversial uh, popular consult consultation that will end on. Uh, March the 20th, the anniversary of the independence. And then we would have um, a referendum on the new constitution that will be drafted by a committee he will choose uh, on July 25th. And finally, we will have um, new elections, uh, legislative election. He didn't mention any possibility of a presidential election on, uh, on December 17th, 2022. Um, and he didn't say anything about uh, the outcome of a possible no vote in the referendum. Um, the, I would say the most pro-side party right now suggested that if he loses the election, and I'm here talking about the, the, the pan-Arabist, the Nazarist, Harak Tashab, um, they said recently that if he loses the uh, referendum, he would have to resign and we would go back to the 2014 constitution. So this national uh, online consultation is very, very unusual. Um, it's, uh, can you tell us a little bit about what it's doing and how it's operating? Like what, what kinds of things are being asked and how are citizens um, responding? Sure, like you said, it is the, it's a very unusual process. Uh, I think it's probably the first in the region. Uh, however, in one of his speeches, he, uh, made explicit parallels with previous experiences in Latin America. Um, I think he mentioned Brazil, uh, Venezuela, and, and Peru. Uh, um, uh, the way it works, so basically there is an online platform, uh, highly unstable, 
online platform and had issue of lack of security. Um, so people would have to send their uh, national ID number to um, to a phone number and, and get a code, log into that platform and respond to 30 questions. Um, questions about pretty much everything. Um, most of them are not really pre precise, but I think three specific questions about political the political system matter more than the rest of the question. Um, the first one asked if people want to have uh, a presidential system or legislative or, or parliamentary system or mixed system. It's not clear what mixed means. Um, the second question has to do with the re idea of uh, establishing a, a, a recall uh, after a post-election recall. So basically, if if uh, constituencies would uh, are disappointed by the performance of a member of the parliament, they would have to um, organize recall elections comparable to the U.S. In fact, in his public discourse, he uh, made the analogy with the system that exists in the U.S. Um, and the third one has to do with the, with the constitution, whether or not we need the constitutional reform. Um, and it's pretty clear uh, what kind of responses he's expecting. In fact, uh, one of his closest um, advisors and allies um, uh, posted on his Facebook page what people and his supporters should, should vote. Uh, so he expects a presidential system um, yes, for the recall and yes for um, uh, constitutional amendment. The rest of the questions, uh, I don't think they matter that much. Interesting. So we, we've seen um, uh, more and more street protests uh, against Saeed, escalating violence against them. Um, and we've seen several, you know, you know popular, important uh, political institutions changing sides and uh, who had originally supported Saeed. So how would you describe the trends in where is like Tunisian political opinion now? How would you describe the major um, uh, the major trends and um, and uh, alliances or alignments? So regarding the uh, political parties forming the political elite, um, the uh, large majority uh, from the right leaning political parties like uh, old regime. Uh, based PDL to the former uh, party communist of union workers now known as the communist party um, are um, critical of side or politically opposed sometimes the only exception are um, the uh, pan-arabist uh, both the Nasserist and the Baathists um, UGTT which is a key player in Tunisian politics is not as radical as political as the uh, the majority of political parties, um, for several reasons, including um, the internal divisions that exist. Um, also, they will have its national its electoral national congress uh, very soon. Um, so the leadership is careful. Uh, they would like to have the votes of the pan Arabists who are right now supporting Syed. Uh, and I think that that matters. Uh, however, locally, we are seeing uh, unions uh, still attached to the organization of strikes. Uh, unions concerned about uh, the government uh, position to to strikes and and labor rights, uh, and more importantly, concerns about his economic orientations and his uh, interest in uh, signing a deal with the IMF. That would probably harm um, the uh, rights and living standards of UGDT uh, athletes. Uh, and I would add to that, in addition to the political elite, the, the, the popular opinion uh, or the popular support to Saeed is, uh, is decreasing. Um, in the just, uh, just before the coup, uh, the level of approval was at 30%. Uh, and it spiked to 80-ish percent uh, just after the coup. And right now it's it's at uh, around 60%. Um, so still strong. So, and probably less. Yeah. 
I would say, yes, strong, but continuously declining. And, and I think even rapidly declining, losing almost 30 points in a in, in few months. I think it's, uh, and, uh, and also people have high expectations, they, they, whatever political expectation or economic expectations. And if these expectations are not met, if he continues to focus only on what he's interested in, which is a change of the, of the political institutions and the rules of the game, um, I think I think the, the level of support will, will will decrease, will continue to decrease. So right now, for example, there is a high proportion of Tunisians who are boycotting um, his uh, uh, popular consultation. Uh, we don't have so far represent and I actually represented surveys or indicators, but um, there are like polls in websites of of of, part of the main radios in the country that show that. Uh, 30% are boycotting. Um, I, so I, I think it, it matches with the, the rate of approval. Uh, and it, I think it will probably decrease uh, within the next months. Um, I mean, 60% is not that far from 50% 50, 50 that he needs right. to get his new constitution approved. Well, it's really interesting. Uh, the, uh, thank you so much for, uh, for taking the time to talk to us about all of this. Thank you for having me.